In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Respectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And today we got a super exciting episode to share with you. We are going to be talking about the retirement of Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer and the uh, subsequent nomination process of his predecessor, which is going to be quite an interesting process, and Mm -hmm. we're looking forward to seeing how that turns out. Uh, Then we're going to spend some time talking about private prisons. We're going to do another injustice system, another addition to our injustice system series. And finally, we're going to have a talk about Joe Rogan and (laughs) Spotify and free speech and platforming and all of the fun stuff that doesn't force us to do a fuck ton of research. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And if, and if, you're tired of people talking about Joe Rogan and Spotify, and you think, fuck that, that doesn't matter. Um, as usual on the show, you know, we'll take it as a jumping off point to have a deeper conversation that we think is Yeah, exactly. Important. It's going to so be more of a philosophical discussion about the, the, the whole thing. For sure. Absolutely. And the first two um, segments are all correlated. This is, this is exciting. Yeah. This is a roller coaster. Yeah. What, a fun, what a fun episode. <laughs> I, I, am, I am excited. I am very excited. But do you know what I'm not excited about, Michael? Uh-oh, you're foreshadowing. I am really not excited to hear about the COVID numbers. You shouldn't be. So (laughs) in the world at this point, we've had 385 million cases, which is up from 362 million last week. So that's 23 million new cases in a week, or about 3.3 million new cases per day, which is actually down from 3.4 million new cases per day last week. So that's about a 3% decline in daily new cases. In terms of death... Uh, worldwide, we've had 5.71 million deaths from COVID, which is up from 5.64 million last week. So that's 70,000 new deaths in a week, or about 10,000 deaths per day, which is up from 8,500 deaths per day the week before. So that's an 18% increase in daily deaths. In terms of vaccination rate, uh, 62.8% of the world's population has at least one dose of a vaccine which is up from 62.3% last week. So just a half a percent increase in vaccination rate in a week. In the U.S., we've hit 76.6 million cases, which is up from 73.8 million last week. So that's 2.8 million cases in a week, or about 400,000 cases per day, down from 642,000 cases per day last week. So that's actually a 40% decline in daily new cases. Um, In terms of death in the U.S., we've hit 916,000 deaths, which is up from 897,000 last week. So that's 19,000 deaths in a week, or about 2,700 deaths per day, which is up from 2,500 deaths per day the week before. It's about an 8% increase in total deaths. In terms of vaccination in the U.S., 75% of people have at least one dose, which is up 1% from last week. Um, 64% have two doses, which is up 1% from last week, and a whopping 27% have a booster, which is up from 
25% last week, so a 2% increase. You know what just struck me as I was as I was going through that? What? So not only did we break through 900,000 deaths, but it's going to be a million deaths. Yeah. Pretty yeah. soon. Pretty damn it soon. Is. It is. Ouch. Yeah. But it's just the flu. <laughs> Man, that that harkens back to a simpler time. <laughs> yeah. When uh we were still in person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember I remember we were taking bets about team at work about how long it would be um before we came back into the office. And I think <laughs> the the longest time period that anyone bet. Are you ready for this? What? Ten weeks. Ouch. <laughs> That physically hurts me. Yeah. We just hit like, two I, years. <laughs> like my heart just stopped for a second and then it like started going faster and it was trying to get out of my chest and it hurt <laughs> when you said that. Ten weeks. <laughs> it's been a little bit longer than that. Yeah. Pretty naive. Pretty naive. Ouch. Um, which, by the way, speaking of things that went on longer than we thought they would, mm-hmm. um, Stephen Breyer. <laughs> Yeah. Stephen Breyer's career on the Supreme Court. That's a long one. So there is one thing that I would like to point out real quick. One of the things that I have noticed among some progressive activists, progressive commentators, with regard to the commentary surrounding Stephen Breyer, Mm -hmm. is feeling like the fact that the moment that Biden was sworn in, that he didn't, that, that Breyer didn't immediately retire, that that's like, that means that he was being selfish or egotistical or whatever. Hmm. I just want to point out, um, he was going to retire during the Biden administration. Yeah. He was going to retire during the Biden administration. Like, the dude's in his in his 80s. Yeah. All right? He might have wanted to wait, like, a year or something just so that he could, you know, ride it out for just a little bit. Mm-hmm. But he was always going to retire, and he was almost certainly going to retire before midterms. Yeah. I mean, he's in his, he's in his eighties to your point. Like, you know, at this point he's pretty much got to run for president. (laughs) (laughs) No, but yeah, I mean, and that's the thing, like I get why some people might think in this age of a highly politicized Supreme court that like anyone that doesn't fall directly in with like the most advantageous thing for the party is like not on the side of the party, but like, Stephen Breyer is like one of the last remaining justices of like a slightly less politicized court, like bipartisan confirmation. Like he was recommended to, uh, to Clinton for, you know, appointment to the Supreme court by a Republican, like, and yet he's like a, a, a liberal justice, you know? So like he's, he's one of the last vestiges of like a less politicized version of the court. And we, I don't think we should forget about that because it's, like that's what was one of his strengths throughout his career was like being able to leverage that um that like not not like less politicized position yeah and for a second let's before we get into the confirmation process let's just Mm -hmm. do a quick go through of his career yeah for sure uh, and his life because look there's definitely a lot to admire about this guy i mean he definitely was not like a, a super ultra progressive, but sure. he definitely was a 
voter on the right side of several Supreme Court cases yeah. that are that are really important and have have shaped law. And and even even he's even been a dissenting voice in court cases that I mean, I would argue were, you know, would probably settle the wrong way, but um but still ended up voting the right way. So uh he originally attended uh, Stanford University in uh, 1955, um, and this is this is all according to uh, Oyez, which is, you know, I, 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 I'm not familiar with this source, but I feel like, you know, I, I don't know why I would make up his biography, so it's probably I think fine. it's I think it's Oye, which Oye? is like uh, a website that is like an organization that like documents specifically like court biographies and stuff it's a good source. okay yeah okay okay cool cool um so so yeah he he originally attended stanford university uh he studied philosophy he graduated in 1959 he went on to um magdalen college at oxford university as a marshall scholar hmm. he continued his studies in philosophy as well as economics and graduated in 1961 and he was uh first class honors wow um he then returned to the united states and studied at harvard law because of course he did yeah <laughs> they all did <laughs> either harvard or Yale. <laughs> um he worked as an editor for the harvard law review because of he course gradu- he did he <laughs> yep he uh graduated um uh, magna cum laude because of course he did um, after graduation, he was a clerk for Justice Arthur Goldberg, uh, who is an assistant justice on the Supreme Court of the, of the United States. Um, during his first, and he, this w- was happening during his first year of law school, he was a special assistant to the Assistant U.S. General for Antitrust mm-hmm. from 1965 to 1967. He was all at this at the same time. Uh, he was also an associate professor at Harvard Law. Um, he was he was this this was interesting. I didn't know about this. He was a special prosecutor in the Watergate prosecution force. Interesting. Um, he then joined the uh, Judiciary Committee, the Senate Judiciary Committee, as a special counsel, and then as a chief counsel, and then. After that, he he was first appointed to the U.S. Court of Appeals in 1980, which it's really common for being appointed to the U.S. Court of Appeals to be basically a jumping off point to to eventually be appointed to the Supreme Court. Yeah, which ultimately ended up happening in 1994 when uh, when President Bill Clinton appointed Breyer to the Supreme Court, mm. uh, and he has served there ever since then. And to Michael's point, his career in a lot of ways has been summed up by like nonpartisan ideology. Yeah. And and the thing is, I know that I know that based on some of the things that I'm going to say in this segment, this you're probably going to think that me saying this is bullshit, but I actually do believe this. I think the world would be a better place if the courts were not so partisan. Yeah, I right? agree. They shouldn't be partisan. It should be more about interpreting the law. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that's just not how things are. Yeah. That's just that's just not how things are. And that's not how they're going to be. So 
he has had a pretty impressive career. He has been an important vote on many Supreme Court cases. One of the biggest ones that comes to mind for me is the Hodges versus Obergefell uh, case, which legalized marriage equality nationwide. Mm-hmm. And, and, and to be clear, it might not seem like that was a, like that was a big deal because like all of the liberal so-called justices voted for that. But I mean, let's not forget if he wasn't there, then it wouldn't have happened. Yeah. You know? So even, even though he's just, he's mostly kind of in the background, he's, he's probably, even if you are somebody that follows politics, you he's probably one of the justices that you have least thought about. Yeah. That's probably Um, true. But honestly, that's okay. Yeah. That is fine. (laughs) You know, like, like I don't like it's, it's kind of weird that, you know, the justices on the Supreme court get so much individual attention. You know, they're jurists. They're supposed to be, you know, legal scholars and thinkers rather than like, you know, subjects of like political attention really yeah but i mean yeah and and like i think i think in a lot of ways like he has a his jurisprudence is like honestly pretty aligned with like this show you know and and i think we shouldn't we shouldn't discount the fact that like he belongs to a more traditional school of jurisprudence and when i say traditional i mean like a, a a tradition that respects you know the right of legislatures to legislate and has a yeah. pretty high bar for um declaring things unconstitutional as opposed to like the originalist jurisprudence which declares shit unconstitutional willy-nilly depending on however they feel like the they want to interpret the constitution on that particular day but like he is like an expert in administrative uh jurisprudence which like obviously you know Sounds boring, but like is actually probably the most influential area of federal law because it is the part of federal law that governs administrative agencies, which are the main bodies that are actually implementing, um, you know, regulations and laws at this point. We're talking about like the CDC, the EPA, the FDA, and these are all bodies that have delegated rights of authority from from Congress. Um to enact and promulgate rules and like that's really important right like an an originalist's question whether these bodies can even exist but without them imagine trying to get imagine imagine taking the covid vaccine through congress having them approve the you know the rules that enable it to be you know deemed safe and effective and go into place that would be ridiculous these administrative agencies are critical to the functioning of our government and he's like an expert and a staunch defender of these agencies a staunch defender of defender of you know the rights of legislatures to legislate um which is kind of a it's a big deal that that's his perspective on a court that's more and more textualist and and uh, an, an originalist um yeah he even wrote a book in 2005 um which like i just thought that i had to mention this because it like aligns so well with with a segment we did on our show not too not too long ago about negative and positive liberty and it's called active liberty and it's about the administrative state 
right, administrative agencies, and their role in, you know, not only respecting negative liberty, the right not to be, you know, um, interfered with, but also positive liberty, the right to be secure and protected, to affirmatively act for the common good. Um, so, like, he is all about the government being a force for good in the world. And, th you know, that, that leads to a very pragmatic, very um, uh, fact-intensive type of jurisprudence that is definitely worth respecting. Yeah, absolutely. And and like I said, I know that there was a whole campaign to try to get him to retire. Mm -hmm. Like there was pro progressive groups that actually like had billboards or, or buses <laughs> with billboards in front of the Supreme Court that said retire Breyer. He was going to retire. Yeah. All right. He was going to retire. He was going to retire on his own time, but he was going to retire before midterms. That was always going to happen. Yeah. I, I don't know why people were so... I, I Okay, I understand why you were freaked out because of the last three Supreme Court picks mm -hmm. all being from Trump um, and all being fucking terrible. <laughs> but this was always going to happen. Yeah, and this all is right. the right so, time to retire, right? He's retiring yeah, at the end the right of, the, of like the first term of the Supreme Court that's concluding under a Democratic president. This is the right time. Yeah, yeah it makes total sense. It makes total sense. This is, this is around the same time that um uh kennedy retired mm -hmm. sure i believe yeah it makes it sense then. for them to retire at the end of the supreme court term yeah exactly yeah. It, it so this was always going to happen yeah. so now it's time to talk about what is going to happen next mm -hmm. so one of the so there's a few pieces of context that i want to make sure that we understand before we go into this because as i said the world would be a better place if the courts were not so partisan, but yeah. the fact of the matter is they are. All right. And the biggest reason why they are so partisan is because of Mitch McConnell. <laughs> All right. So let's not forget about history for a second. All right. So Donald Trump, who, by the way, did not win the popular vote. Just, I just, just gonna throw that in there. That should just, oh, that should be part of his official title, Donald Trump, yeah. loser of the popular vote. Yeah, um, Donald Trump appointed three Supreme Court justices. All of them were terrible picks, and their entire process was super fucky. Yeah, like the first one, Neil Gorsuch, was a seat that was stolen. That <laughs> that Mitch McConnell kept open as as the as the majority leader of the Senate he kept it open for a, almost an entire year actually i think it was about a year mm -hmm. yeah it would have been about a year yep um he kept it open so that they could steal the seat and the excuse that he gave was oh well it's an election year which is just a, a totally bullshit made excuse. up excuse that has never been observed before. <laughs> he's like, give the he was like, give the American people a chance to decide, <laughs> which they they didn't didn't get to do because Donald Trump lost the popular vote because the presidency yeah. is not decided by the popular vote. Mitch McConnell, exactly. you fuckity fuck fuckhead. <laughs> yeah. So the first one was stolen. Yeah. Like the first the first Supreme Court justice was stolen. The second Supreme Court justice was had several credible accusations of sexual assault 
that were not adequately investigated, but they wanted to rush it through anyway because they were afraid of losing the midterms. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they put a fucking predator or potential predator on the court. And then they pretended like, oh, Democrats made it all political. Fuck off. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's so far from the truth. And then these brazen assholes put Amy Coney Barrett on the court who got appointed literally days before the election. Yeah. Because, because Ruth Bader Ginsburg died yep. and, and they have no principles. Yeah. And they have no principles. So despite all of the, Oh, well you don't do this in election year. They did it in an election week, week. Yeah. basically. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So all three of the last picks complete bullshit. Yeah. And look, I will here here's what I will say. All right. If it weren't for that first one, you know, if it weren't for the fact that Neil Gorsuch was a stolen seat, if they had just let mm-hmm. if they had just let Merrick Garland go on the court, had the vote, put him on there, you know, and then Trump, I mean, obviously it'd still be pissed off cuz he lost the popular vote, but then then Trump is president, you know, he appoints Kavanaugh. I mean, let let's assume that Let's assume Kavanaugh was not a sexual predator. Yeah. All right. Or he appointed somebody else. It'd be like, okay, okay, fine, fine. I mean, you're the president. You appoint it. Mm-hmm. And then even with the whole Ruth Bader Ginsburg thing, like yeah. it would suck, but I'd be like, well, he's the president right now. Yeah. So, so of course he's going to, he's going to get to do that. But because of the fact that they played dirty politics, they stole that seat from Merrick Garland and now have created a system in which there are there are six conservatives and three liberals. Mm-hmm. Take precedent and shove it. Yeah. All right. At this point, like I've already said that the Democrats should expand the court. Mm-hmm. I actually I seriously do think that the Democrats should just expand the court. And of course, they're they're too afraid to do that because they're not willing to play a little bit dirty. Yeah. All right. The Republicans, through legal means, have completely taken away precedence in order to gain power. Mm-hmm. Democrats should do that too. All right, they're not going to do that, but they should. So yeah. I just want to make sure. I just want to make sure that we understand the, the the historical context before going into discussing the actual nomination process. Yeah. Well, the Republicans did hand us one positive thing while Donald Trump was president and they were confirming justices. They threw out the 60-vote filibuster for Supreme (laughs) Court nominees. So Joe fucking Manchin and Kirsten fucking Sinema can't use that as some kind of, like, like, um, you know, not wanting to throw out the filibuster as a reason to not, you know, support and confirm a Supreme Court justice. So, you know, it we would have a lot less uh, freedom and power to appoint a liberal young justice like we want to um, if the Republicans had not done that because Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema almost certainly wouldn't have supported a you know removal of the, the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees. So yeah. that is one thing that is going in our favor thanks to the Republicans yeah. uh, you know, ignoring of precedents. And the critical thing about that is that that means that you don't need a single Republican's consent. Yeah. 
and you shouldn't ask for a single Republican's consent. And that's that's one of the big things that I want to emphasize. So I want to go through uh, a list of people that have been floated. By the way, so so Joe Biden has already said that he is planning on nominating a black woman. Mm-hmm. And let's let's talk about that for for just a second. You mean the the fact that Republicans are having uh, throwing a hissy fit over it? <laughs> well, some of them are. Yeah, uh, some of them are. And and you know there there are some. Uh, there are definitely some commentators that are throwing a fit about that. Look, let's make one thing clear. I'm nominations to the Supreme court have always been like the identity has always been symbolic that that's always Mm -hmm. been a thing. Mm -hmm. Ronald Reagan made a huge point out of uh, nominating the first woman justice, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor. Like he made, he made a big deal out of that. Um, when, George H.W. Bush was replacing uh, Thurgood Marshall with Clarence Thomas. He never directly said, oh, I'm definitely replacing a black person with a black person because, you know, you know, for identity reasons. He never directly said it, but that's what he did. Yeah. Granted, um, he replaced Thurgood Marshall with Clarence like, Thomas. The fucking foremost, like, jurist. Of, of, like, the latter half of the 21st century with fucking Clarence Thomas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also Trump, when he nominated Amy Coney Barrett, Mm -hmm. like he specifically announced that he was going to replace uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg with a woman. Mm -hmm. And when he said that, people were cheering. Republicans were loving it. They were eating it up. Yeah. And yet somehow there are some of them that are turning around and being like, oh, well, you're just being racist. Well, a big difference, Nathan, is, is Biden is proposing replacing a white man with a black woman. So that's that's the great, you know, takeover or whatever they call it. Replacement, yeah. the great replacement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um so look. Representation does have an impact. Representation yes. does matter. It's not yeah. the end all be all, you know, as I mean, as we can see with Clarence Thomas. It's not the end all be all. You can be black and still be fucking terrible. Um, but it does matter. Because it can sometimes inform policy. It can sometimes mm-hmm. inform your opinions. You know, we've talked about this on the on the show before. Identity can have an impact because you have an experience. Yeah. All right. So the fact that we've never ha- and it's also one of those things where the fact that we've never had a black woman serve on the Supreme Court, it's like it's about time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's 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 about it's it's about time, and the voices you know? on the Supreme Court really, really matter. Um, yeah, not not only for representation, not only for, um, you know, just how important it is to be able to like see yourself represented on the highest court in the land. They really matter because uh, Supreme Court justices listen to other Supreme Court justices. So when they are, you know, in their chambers discussing these legal issues, like you know, debating and and trying to convince one another of like the correctness of their legal perspective, having someone who's, you know, representative of like the United States of various communities is really important because they can be a voice for, um, representation, like literal legal representation of those, of those interests. Um, yeah. 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 So it's like, I think it's really, really would be a great step to have a black female justice. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there are plenty of completely qualified 
and that's the, yeah, that's the thing. That, like, like, like that. Yeah, it's it's such a red herring for Republicans to be like, oh, it shouldn't matter. You know, gender and race shouldn't matter. It should all be about qualification. Uh, say the people that like put just you know Justice Kavanaugh and Amy Coney <laughs> and, and Justice Barrett on the court, um, both yeah. notoriously underqualified for the Supreme Court, um, yeah. and confirmed tons of. Uh, federal judges who the American Bar Association rated as uh, like insufficiently qualified. But, you know, all that aside, like there is plenty of room for competence, qualification and representation. Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's talk about some of the people that are on the list. Uh, The one that appears to be number one on Biden's list is uh, a woman named um, Kelly. Katanji Brown Jackson. I think that's how you say her first name. Uh, she is currently on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, which, as I as as we said earlier, oftentimes being on the Court of Appeals is seen as a stepping stone. Yeah, for, specifically in in the D.C. Circuit. Yeah, specifically on the D.C. Circuit. Um. So you know currently already has a pretty good position. Um, she was, uh, she, she was actually appointed this year. Um, and she actually was able to pull in three Republican votes, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, and let's see, she, she attended Harvard university because of course she did. (laughs) And, um, she also clerked for Breyer at the start of her career. All right. Um, so she's the one that, seems to be number one on the list. Yeah. Uh, she's also 51, which is awesome. So that's th- pretty young. That's that. Yeah, that's fairly young. Yep. Um, the next one, the, the next name that's been floated around is, um, Leandra Kruger. So, um, she is currently the California Supreme court justice. Yeah. She's on the California Supreme court. So, and she's also 45, I even know. younger. So yeah, which, which always which always makes someone a little bit more um, uh, a little bit more attractive because that means that they can be on the court for longer, ideally. Yeah, and and most importantly, she's got more than one Ivy on her resume. <laughs> she went yeah. to Harvard for undergrad and Yale for law school. Um, yeah, and was the first yeah. uh, black woman uh, to hold the position of the uh, editor in chief of the Yale Law Journal, which is yeah pretty impressive her, her career overall is like quite impressive assistant to the u.s solicitor general in 2007 um deputy assistant attorney general um in the office of legal counsel which represents uh provides legal advice to the president and other agencies in the executive branch in 2013 she's argued 12 cases before the supreme court um which mm-hmm. is like that's mind-blowing that's like a whole career's worth of cases before the Supreme Court. Um, yeah. She's received a bunch of different awards um, and then was put on the uh, California Supreme Court, um, which is, you know. Yeah. Back in 2014. So she's been there for yeah. a while. Yep. And she also clerked for uh, former court justice uh, Paul Stevens or mm-hmm. uh, John Paul Stevens. Yep. Um, here's another one. And I got some things to say about this one. <laughs> so J. Michelle Childs. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about J. Michelle Childs for a bit. All right. She's 55, a little bit older, 
not necessarily a deal breaker. She's currently a judge on the U.S. District Court for the uh, District of, of South Carolina. Um, she's had this role since the early years of the Obama administration. Mm. And she's Lindsey Graham's choice. Hmm. Interesting. Which I think warrants some extra scrutiny. Yeah. <laughs> but also so, James Clyburn's choice. Also James Clyburn's choice. Which I think warrants some extra scrutiny. <laughs> <laughs> so the argument that James Clyburn and Lindsey Graham are focusing on is that she didn't attend an Ivy League school. And it's time to have some representation from people that um, maybe didn't have quite as much of an elitist educational upbringing, which I agree with, actually. You know, I, I, I agree with that. But that's also not the end all be all. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd <laughs> rather have like a really great jurist. And I'm sure she is like that, 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 that shouldn't, you know, detract from that. But like, I'd, I'd rather represent black and female in Ivy League than, <laughs> than yeah. uh, specifically non Ivy League. But yeah, whatever. Yeah. So, um, she is actually a former corporate lawyer. Hmm. So she has a long record of defending employers in South Carolina, which is, by the way, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, is like last in the nation in terms of union membership rates. Hmm. So take the little representation that workers already have in South Carolina and then stack her up against and, and stack her up against them. I mean, so her, her whole record is about defending corporations from employees, which probably explains why Lindsey Graham likes her so much. <laughs> <laughs> so she's, she is a fairly anti-labor record, hmm. which is extremely concerning. Yeah. And, and here's, here's what I have to say about recommendations from Republicans during this, this process. Not a benefit. <laughs> Don't even ask. Yeah. Like, like why would I, we? I, I've like, I, I've, I've been seeing shit where, where apparently the Biden administration behind the scenes is reaching out to Republicans, trying to make deals with Republicans because there are some steps that they can do to try to delay the process, but here's the thing. They can't stop it. And mm -hmm. it's a lifetime appointment. Yeah. So it does not matter. Do not even ask them who they want. Do not even ask them to give an opinion on what they want. This will be a successful, like I, I think this will be a plenty successful appointee yeah. if it receives no Republican votes. Yeah. All right. The Supreme court is now completely politicized. The Republicans decided to make it politicized, so it's time for you to start fighting dirty too. All right, so do not even do not even consider Lindsey Graham's choice. Do not even consider anything that any of the Republicans have to say about it. Yeah, it makes no sense to try to like get their input or like appease them in any fucking way. Like I don't get it. Like, yes. The midterms yeah. are a time limit, right? We have to confirm a Supreme Court justice before the midterms because we're almost definitely going to lose seats and even one Senate seat would be a problem. 
Um, but the average time to confirm like a nominee in like the modern era is 41 days. Yeah. Okay, a month and a half, all right? <laughs> we yeah. got months before the midterms, like, if that is not a risk. And we're looking at, like, in a Katanji Brown-Jackson, we've got, like, a, pers- a public defender, a person who worked on the U.S. Sentencing Commission, uh, you know, is known for her labor-friendly rulings. In um, Justice Leandra Kruger, we've got, you know, a career, like, public servant like legal like like legal representation for the government public servant like supreme california supreme court justice and then we've got corporate lawyer in j michelle childs so yeah let's just go with what we want yeah (laughs) jackson was a public defender yeah that is amazing like truly we've that is the type of representation that we do not have that job is and how important that job is yeah like that means that she is going to be a lot more sympathetic to to people that can't afford fancy ass lawyers. Mm-hmm. That's important. That's big. Yeah. So, you know, what's funny is Mitch McConnell is already trying to set this up as if the Republicans are going to be the uh, the good, calm party well, that is just going to, to care about. about it through. Yeah. So so he actually said, quote, I think you can anticipate the Senate minority treating the nominee with respect and going through the process in a serious, thoughtful way. So now and, they're serious and thoughtful. And with, with And John Cornyn. John <laughs> Cornyn said it won't be a replay of Kavanaugh. Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you. Like Wait, you, you mean it won't be a replay of Kavanaugh in that the Republicans were frantically trying to get their nominee through? <laughs> no, the implication that they're trying to make, like the, the narrative that they're trying to pretend is that the Democrats were being unreasonably partisan during that entire process. Mm. Like that's the narrative that they're trying to sell. That's the one that they're trying to pretend is um, is true. In fact, so Ted Cruz said, quote, all of us were agreed that what we will not do is engage in a kind of partisan circus in personal smears that Democrats have repeatedly resorted to. God, they are the biggest hypocrites that I've ever seen. Like a, a in a requirement for being a Senate Republican is to remove your spinal cord. <laughs> to remove your spinal cord and whatever part of your brain is responsible for shame. All right. I just have one question for any Biden nominee to the Supreme court. Do you like beer? Cause Kavanaugh likes beer. (laughs) (laughs) So don't listen to Republicans. Don't let them be any part of this process. Don't ask their opinion. If they give their opinion, tell them to shove it. It doesn't <laughs> matter if you, I, I don't care if you don't get any Republican votes. Fuck them. Doesn't matter. So now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments Tips for Good. So, Michael, why do we do Tips for Good every week? Well, Nathan, I'm so glad you asked. Um, we do Tips for Good every week because. Oh, you gonna take me home tonight? Oh, down beside that red firelight? Oh, you gonna let it all hang out? Fat bottom girls make the rockin' world go round. 
Mm. Yeah. Mm. Good point. Yeah. I, 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 I agree. I think I agree. we do it for fat bottom girls. Right? Yeah. And you Is know what right? fat bottom girls do? What? You know what they do? Make the rockin'. They make the world a better place. Oh, yes. Because of the rockin'. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Gotcha. That I makes mean, sense. I mean, if the world stopped going around, like mm-hmm. we would die. That's you know, so true. We would just die. Yep. And we can thank Fat Bottom Girls for the world going around. Mm. And I think that makes the world a better that place. That definitely makes the world a better place. Maybe we should just start skipping to that part. Because really, it seems like yeah. the common theme is that they all make the world a bit of that a That does a seem a to be the place. theme. So, so Nathan, you know, what is our tip for good this week? So, our tip for good this week is something that is going to be especially relevant to those of you that live in Virginia. But even if you don't live in Virginia, still. Yeah, still a tip. Um, So as some of you probably know, because we've complained about it several times on the pod, Virginia has a new governor. Hmm. And I think that new governor had a teacher that hurt him because he hates teachers. Hmm. Like he seems to really, really hate teachers. I mean, he just, his attorney general just lifted the vaccine mandate on, uh, on, on public colleges and universities, which affects me. Um, he lifted the mask mandate in elementary schools. He also signed an executive order saying that they can't teach critical race theory or any of its progeny. Basically anything that teaches that racism exists and is bad. And here's how you can avoid it. Um, and he even went a step farther. Oh, by, he thinks critical race theory means critical of racism theory. Gotcha. <laughs> He's like that. If you're going to be critical of me, I'm about all that. <laughs> <laughs> and he even went a step further and he made one of the biggest mistakes that a person can make, which is he created a tip line for a controversial issue, which immediately got overcome with trolls. Mm. So 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 he created a tip line for students and parents to report if a teacher has, you know, taught them about racial history. Yeah. And he he posted he he posted the email up for people to for people to email him and apparently nobody in his staff told him, "Hey, uh that's a stupid fucking idea because it's going to get overrun by trolls." Well, he used all of his good ideas in his day one plan. He didn't have a day two plan. So, uh, you know, it was just this. So the tip for good is email helpeducation at governor.virginia.gov and give them a helpful tip. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not going to dictate the content of that tip. Sure. Um, but I would like to read you one of the tips that was sent to them. Um, this tip was sent by uh, Randy Gray, who is definitely not me. You know, <laughs> definitely not me. It's not a, uh, a nom de plume of any kind. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not like my full name is not Nathan Randolph Gray Seelove. Um, so you might write an email that says something like this. To the Virginia tip line, my name is Randy, and I am a junior at James Wood in Winchester, Virginia. I'm extremely concerned about something my history teacher, Mr. Hawk, in class said, and I was told that this is where I can report it. As Governor Yunkin's executive order said, inherently divisive concepts like critical race theory and its progeny instruct students to only view life through the lens of race 
and presumes that some students are consciously or unconsciously racist, sexist, or oppressive, and that other students are victims. I believe that my teacher has perpetuated the idea that we must be divided by race. During our unit on the War of Northern Aggression, my teacher insisted on using the word slave to describe the workers the South relied on to grow crops. Despite the times, I tried to explain to the teacher that the term slave has a loaded past and our conversations around it have become racialized to the point where even the term brings up negative associations for white people. <laughs> Mr. Hawk insisted on using this divisive language as a white person. I do not want my identity to be attacked when I just want to sit in history class and learn about why America is the best country in the world. I know that the discrimination behind the use of this word is likely unconscious, mm. but sometimes even unconscious bias can really hurt someone. Furthermore, the use of the term slave instead of worker can be used to justify indoctrinating us with the idea that other facts are the result of generations of racial discrimination. For example, I might be forced to confront the fact that about 7% of white people live in poverty versus a fifth of black people. Or the fact that despite black people making up 13% of the U.S. population, they account for 28% of people killed by police. Obviously, none of this proves any type of structural racism, but if the liberals had their way, this could be taught in schools. Please do something about this. The school is James Wood High in Winchester, and the teacher is Mike Hawk. <laughs> with some wax randy <laughs> excellently composed uh mr randy gray if you're listening uh we really appreciated your tip yes <laughs> specifically again, that... the teacher we really appreciated yep. the tip about my cock <laughs> 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 and that's tips for good So for our next segment, we're doing an installment of The Injustice System. As a reminder, The Injustice System is our series about uh, drivers and causes of injustice in uh, our criminal justice system. Mm. Um, so today we're specifically talking about private prisons. Um, so to, to set the stage, um, as you may or may not know, the United States has a mass incarceration problem the united states in prisons the united states the freest country on earth imprisons more people both per capita and in absolute terms than any other nation on earth including russia china iran like all of them yeah let's just let's just think about that for a second china an authoritarian regime with 2 billion people have a less total number of prisoners than the United States. Yeah. With 320 That's million embarrassing. people. <laughs> the freest country in the world. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Um, and so part of that mass incarceration problem is where we put these people, right? And yeah. one of the places where we put people when they're incarcerated is into private prisons. Yeah. Private prisons are for-profit facilities, right? They're run yeah. by companies designed to make money for owners and shareholders. And they make money by receiving government contracts 
um, based, often based on the total number of inmates and their average length of time served. So just to like start off with something that seems like an obvious problem, these facilities yeah. get paid more money when there are more people incarcerated for longer periods of time. Yeah. And what's funny is the argument in favor of private prisons is often, well, because it's capitalist, it's cost saving. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you let you, you let a private prison operate and it's uh, it, it's going to make it's going to make things cost less. Well, according to the Associated Press, there was there was an audit in Georgia specifically about the cost of. Uh, private prisons there versus the regular prisons and state prisons cost about $44 and 56 cents per inmate per day compared to $49 and seven cents for inmates in private prisons. So right off the bat, yeah. the only argument in favor of them is bullshit. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and that's despite that cost is despite them running worse facilities for yeah. easier inmates. So, so yeah. let's, let's go back to this. So like, once again, they're paid more for more incarcerated people for longer lengths of time, but as a business, you know, as a, as a, as a, uh, a person who works for a corporation, I do business analysis, that's my profession, I know that the other way you drive profit is by reducing costs, right? What? I know, you can either increase revenue or reduce costs. Um, and so in order to continue to drive, so, so the maximum amount, right, of money that they can make in these facilities is like their number of beds and like a human life. So there is kind of a yeah. upper cap on how much revenue they can make. So yeah. their natural incentive is to try to drive down the cost of these facilities, right? And to drive up the revenue. And to drive Which up the revenue. Which I think th that's another important, like, think about how fucked up the incentive structure is there. Yeah. On both levels. So the two main reasons to have a, a, an incarceration system in our country is, number one, to keep dangerous people off the streets, mm -hmm. to, to protect society from potentially dangerous people. And number two, at least this is how it should be, this is never how it is, but this is how it should be, to try to rehabilitate people into rejoining society and becoming productive members of society. Yep. All right? Which means that a society is succeeding when it has less people incarcerated. Mm -hmm. But if the incentive structure is on getting profit through revenue, the only way that you get revenue is by having more prisoners. Yeah. Which is not what we want. And the way to reduce cost is by limiting what you can do for those prisoners, i.e. prison beds, or, and this is the worst part of it, limiting rehabilitation programs. Mm -hmm. So the priorities are completely, completely backwards. Yeah. And we can actually see this having a pretty clear impact on recidivism. Mm -hmm. So as it stands already, um, recidivism is horrible. Yeah. That's like, the rate even, at which even, people are returned to prison after having been released. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, so according to a study done by the U.S. Department of Justice, 50% of incarcerated people return to prison within three years of being released. And uh, according to several studies that were compiled by the organization in the public interest, um, there was a study done in Minnesota of about 3,500 Minnesota prisoners. And this was between 2007 and 2009. And they found that the risk of a person being rearrested, who, by the way, who was from a private prison, increases by 13%. And that the chances of the person being reconvicted is 22%. A study of 22,000 Oklahoma prisoners released between the year uh, 1997 and 2001 found that people in private prisons saw a likelihood of recidivism increase by 17%. Mm -hmm. All right. There was a study of uh, 27,000 Mississippi prisoners between the year uh, 1996 and, and 2004, or specifically prisoners that were sentenced during those times in private prisons. And they found that private prisons held people for an average of 60 to 90 days longer for similar offenses than public prisons. Mm -hmm. All right. So it, it increases recidivism. It doesn't save money. Yep. What's the point? Yeah. And that's the thing. So, so you might say like, okay, well, you know, the prison, the prison system is just housing people that are get arrested. You know, sentencing is what sentencing is. They don't have control over that. But the thing is not only do these private prisons, um, you know, may like retain people for longer periods of time because they don't offer the same kinds of rehabilitation programs and the early release programs that public prisons do. They also, most contracts have uh, a bed guarantee, which guarantees that the state supplies enough prisoners to fill 80 to 100% of the beds in these private prisons. If the state fails to do that, it pays a fine to the companies running the prison. So they pay for, like they pay extra if the beds aren't filled, which means that it basically, you know, incentivizes the state to send more people to these more poorly run facilities, right? And it essentially penalizes taxpayers for low incarceration rates. Yeah. Those, those same incentive problems in the prison are passed along to the state. It doesn't benefit the state. In fact, it hurts the state if there are too few people in these private prisons. And on top yeah. of that, so not only do they have, not only do they have, you know, these terribly, you know, perverse incentives, right? Not only do they cost more, they cost more despite having a more favorable prison population. Their contracts stipulate that they get to pick the prisoners that come to their facilities. So they primarily pick um, healthy because they're lower medical cost and nonviolent because they require less oversight prisoners than public facilities. So they cost more money for easier prisoners, um, making them 
like way worse run facilities than these than public prisons. At the same time, remember, corporations are constantly facing profitability pressure, right? It is the responsibility of a corporation to continue to increase its profits regardless regardless of revenue. In order to do this, another thing they cut in addition to um, rehabilitation and uh, you know um, and early release programs and things like that, right? They also cut uh, their labor costs, right? The primary driver that drives 60 to 70% of annual operating budgets in these facilities is the cost of correctional officers, right? So they do that by paying correctional officers less. On average, private corporations, uh, correctional officers earn almost $24,000 less per year than correctional officers in the public sector. As a result, you, as you might expect, they get lower quality correctional officers than they have in the public sector. On top of that, their turnover is way, way worse. So not only do they get lower quality candidates because the pay is way worse, but their turnover um, is three times higher than that of the public sector. So they've got more green, less experienced correctional officers. At the same time, they train them less because training costs money. On average, the public sector requires 58 more pre-service trainings than new officers receive in private facilities. And guess yeah. what? Worse correctional officers lead to more prison violence. F uh, yeah. An estimated 49% more violent incidents and guard assaults are reported in private prisons relative to public ones. And inmate-on-inmate -inmate assaults are 65 percent more likely in a private facility yeah and i want us to go ahead and real quick just point out how prevalent this problem is because on the surface it doesn't look huge but i, th I think it's important to um i think it's important to analyze this number a little bit more so as it stands 8% of total state and federal prisoners reside in a reside in a private prison, which doesn't sound like that much. All right. 8% is a relatively low, low number, but number one, I would argue that it's 8% too much, but number two, that accounts for 115,428 people. And th these, these numbers were last updated in 2019. Mm-hmm. All right. So over 100,000 people. That's still yeah. a lot of people. Yeah. Also, it's important to note that it depends on what state you're in. Mm -hmm. Because some states, it's just flat out, there, there's, no, there's no private prisons. All right. You know, some states actually have a brain. You know, <laughs> states, states that are progressive bastions like West Virginia, <laughs> Louisiana, Arkansas. Missouri, Kansas, Nebraska, deeply red states that are all like, yeah, no, this is bad. This, this is bad. Mm -hmm. um, but unfortunately, in some states, you are significantly more likely to be in a private prison. So again, these numbers are 
uh, as of 2019. So uh, Arizona, 19.5 percent mm. of people incarcerated are are in private prisons. Colorado, 19.5. Hawaii, 23.6. Indiana, 15.1. Mississippi, 16.2. New Jersey, 12.3. North Dakota, 17.2. Oklahoma, 25.2. Tennessee, 29. New Mexico, 36.4. Montana, 47%. Jeez. Almost half. Wow. So if, if you are incarcerated in Montana, you basically have a 50-50 shot of ending up in one of these prisons. Yeah. I mean, the reason I, I, the reason why it doesn't account for as big of a pop, uh, as big of a percentage of the entire population of the United States is because there are a lot of states that just don't have mm-hmm. them. Yeah. All right. But the states that do have them, some of them have a pretty high percentage of like have have a, are a pretty high percentage of the total incarcerated population. Yeah. And you shouldn't, ha- and that shouldn't depend on what state you're in. Yeah, on an accident. And in fact, federal level, on a federal level, all right, people that are incarcerated in federal prison, 15.7%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> it's crazy. And, and the thing is, like, the cost cutting has a, is a real problem because, like, these, this is already a vulnerable population. And I'm not, and I'm not like, you know, I'm not trying to like make up, you know, make up sad stuff about prisoners. Like that's not what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to say is that people in detention facilities have very little representation. They have almost no recourse. Their lives are totally controlled by the facility that they're incarcerated in, which means that like if they're being like treated poorly or abused like they don't there's not much they can do and it's worse for our society overall to keep people in prison longer and to rehabilitate them less driving up recidivism driving up incarceration um and in these facilities like they cut corners everywhere one uh, one psychiatrist um reviewed uh private prisons in mississippi and found that inmates dropped between 10 and 60 pounds after entering the facility because they were severely underfed. They're like not being fed. And, and as usual, there is a racial component here as well. Right. That is, that is a human rights violation. Yeah. That is a straight up human rights violation. Yeah. Like there are international laws against that. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, I, I think it is important to note that Joe Biden did sign an executive order that uh, is an attempt to phase out contracts with with federal uh, federal contracts with pri- federal private prisons. So those those 2019 numbers that I read are likely going to decrease. Mm-hmm. However, it is important to note that among the immigrant detention population, 81 percent are confined by privately run facilities. Wow. And Biden's executive order does not limit contracts with immigration detention facilities. 
Interesting. 81%. So we've laid out, right, that these facilities are have terrible incentives. They're incentivized to treat their inmates terribly and to rack up as many of them as possible. Um, they're incentivized to cut corners when it comes to safety, when it comes to um, correctional officers, uh, when it comes to actually providing supplies to inmates. And of course... There is a racial component underlying all of this as well. What? what? Because, you know, <laughs> you're much more likely to be incarcerated in the United States if you are black. And you're much more likely to be incarcerated in a private facility if you're young. And due to the war on drugs, which funnels a significantly higher percentage of young black males into the criminal justice system, there is a significant, you know, significantly higher percentage of people in color of color in these facilities, which incarcerate people for longer and rehabilitate them less. You know, it's, it's not that these facilities are like selecting, you know, more black people, but they are selecting more young people. And when you in, prison a young person and put them in a crappier facility and rehabilitate them less they're more and and cause their recidivism to go up you are systematically disadvantaging those young people for life and the fact that our criminal justice system disproportionately disfavors people of color at the same time you are just compounding um, the racial disparities in our criminal justice system by funneling more and more of these young black people into poorly run, unsafe, undersupplied, underfunded, uh, poorly incented private prisons. Yeah. So I'd strongly encourage all of you to uh, check out the sentencing projects page about this. It shows you state by state what percentage of the total population are uh, currently incarcerated of the prison population are currently incarcerated by private prisons. And uh, if you see your state on there and it, that number's high, you got some work to do. And now it's time for our favorite segment. Asshat of, of the, the week. week. So Nathan, who is our asshat this week? God, I fucking hate this guy. <laughs> <laughs> I could not be more excited to once again name our ass hat for the week. It's Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Ooh, Ron DeSantis. He's definitely been on here before. He's way he too much of an ass hat. He's been on here several times. Yeah. He is a terrible human being. Mm. I I'm I'm worried that someday we will have to uh, we will have to make a rule where we can't have him on here anymore because he will be a weekly addition if he is, because he will be in a position in which he will be able to do lots of asshatty things. Do not speak. Hopefully, of it. <laughs> that's that's why I'm not saying it. <laughs> it's like it's it's the it's the what Ron DeSantis position in power that shall not be named. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, what exactly. did Ron DeSantis do this week to get on our show? So, so uh, there was apparently a Nazi rally mm. in Florida. Mm-hmm. As you do, because that's sure. that's become a thing now. Yeah, it happens. It's 1942 um, all over again. 
And so you would think that the easiest thing in the world would just to be to come out and be like, these people do not represent our values. These people represent horrific racism and anti-Semitism, and they have no place in the Republican Party. They have no place in Florida, and I condemn them in the strongest terms. Wow, that would be you should be as super easy. Yeah, I just came up with that. <laughs> Maybe I should. Yeah, I just came up with that with that on the top of my head. Wow. Would be the easiest thing to do. So naturally, that's so, what Ron DeSantis did, right? Uh, uh no, no, actually. Hmm. Um, so he didn't publicly comment on the marchers at all until a, a there was a press conference on Monday, in which he was asked, "Hey, bro, Nazis in your state, man." <laughs> y- you want to think about condemning them? And here is this. Resp- here is his response. And, Quote, and and let's just reiterate. Go ahead. How easy it would be to answer this softball question. Yeah, this is this is a so- this is the bad. softest of softballs. Nazi bad. Like if he had just said Nazi bad, <laughs> that would have been better. All right. If he had just said that, but that's not what he said. What he said was quote. So what I'm going to say is that these people, these Democrats who are trying to use this as some kind of political issue to try to smear me as if I had something to do with it, we're not playing their game. I'm not going to have people try to smear me that belong to a party that elevates anti-Semites to the halls of Congress. Dude. He he, he tried to say Nazi bad and what he said was Democrats bad. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, dude, let's just understand the implication here. So the only reason why you would have, why, 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 the only reason why you would feel like it is a, it is politically motivated, like, like asking you to, to just do the, the bare minimum and say Nazi bad. The only reason why you would think that that was a political gotcha is if you felt like those were your people, <laughs> you know, the Nazis. So, I mean, you kind of just outed yourself. I mean, look, you don't have to like Democrats. And you can even say, like, look, to anybody who's trying to equate me with this people, go fuck yourselves. Like, these people are bad, these people are terrible, and they have nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. But instead, like, he had to turn it around on Democrats. And of course, yeah. let, let's understand what he what he's saying when he's talking about elevating anti-Semites to the halls of Congress. He's talking about the fact that there are a few members of the Democratic caucus that have the gall to say that Palestinians are humans. Mm. Like, yeah, that maybe Israel sometimes doesn't treat Palestinians well, which, by the way, Amnesty International recently, uh, recently um, labeled Israel as an apartheid state. Hmm. So this isn't just a few people in Congress. All right. And it's not anti-Semitism. And and let's right. let's be clear, Mr. Ron DeSantis. The best way to say, you know, these people are trying to smear me by equating me with a Nazi is to say Nazi bad. Right? Like it's not like that's the best way for you to say, you know, I don't know why these people are like you know, comparing me to a Nazi, it's a smear, all that stuff. I'm not a Nazi because Nazis are bad. But instead, he's yeah. like, 
Well, now I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place because on the one hand, <laughs> you want me to say not so bad, and then on the other hand, not so votes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To be fair to him, at one point, he did call them some jackasses yeah. doing this on the street. Yeah. To be fair to him. So he does should think do that it they privately. were jackasses. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, God, dude, you couldn't bring yourself to just, like, just be like, look, these were Nazis, and Nazis are bad. All right? It's the easiest thing in the world. Yep. So congratulations to Ron DeSantis for re- once again being our Ass Hat of, of the, the Week. week. So for our next segment, we are talking about... Uh, we're we're meta podcasting. We're doing a podcast talking about a podcast, um, yep. specifically talking about Joe Rogan um, and the whole controversy about um, his show on Spotify. So, just a little bit of background here: um, Joe Rogan has a number of episodes uh, where he has guests that say dubious shit about COVID and COVID vaccines and all that stuff. He has repeatedly, like, you know, been just asking questions, uh, which is my favorite euphemism um, for spreading misinformation. Um, <laughs> um, and and as a result, uh, a couple high-profile artists have said, like, you know, it's, it's him or me, uh, including Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, who have both, you know, said to Spotify, um, which I think recently acquired, like, exclusive rights to joe rogan's podcast for like a hundred million dollars or something crazy like that um because he is like i think he's one i think he's like the most listened to podcast but anyway they they said to spotify like hey like get him off the platform or i'm taking all my music with me and spotify went ahead and bit that bullet instantly and now you can't listen to neil young or Joni mitchell on spotify uh but you can listen to misinformation by joe rogan yeah so this is a complicated issue for me yeah like Joe Rogan is probably the figure that I have the most mixed views about of any other figure in politics. <laughs> like truly mixed. most people. Well, well, most people in politics, I either like moderately like despise or moderately despise. Mm. You know, there are some that I'm like, a little bit lukewarm on, but, and and, and then there's some people where I'm like, okay, um, you're okay, but you don't go as far as I want you to be. Mm -hmm. Joe Rogan is, is one of those cases where there are times in which he like, like he has a conversation with a right winger in which he come like just by asking questions, Mm -hmm. he completely unmasks them. Mm-hmm. You know, he did that with Candace Owens. He did that with Dave Rubin. Um, I would argue that there were some instances in which he kind of did that with Ben Shapiro. Hmm. And I've also seen him have conversations with some with leftists, with left wing politicians. His conversation with Bernie Sanders hmm. was actually pretty major because there are a lot of right wingers or libertarians that listen to his podcast that heard Bernie Sanders. Yeah. And, and actually listened to his message. And actually listened. Yeah. And that was a good thing. That was a really good thing. And if you had asked me like months ago, you know, because I would also like to point out, 
he has had people on there that were problematic in which it did felt feel like, okay, you're kind of giving a platform to a, to somebody who's, who really should not have your platform yeah. or you don't deserve to share. They don't deserve to have your platform shared with them. And he's also made some transphobic comments in the past, right? He's, he's made some kind of off color comments. So if you had asked me like months ago, a few months ago, you know, if Joe Rogan is a net positive or a net negative in the world, I would say net positive. Mm -hmm. But now, because he has such a big audience and because of the bullshit on vaccines, I don't know. Yeah. Because I just like to point something out. So I he recently released a 10-minute video apology about this, which out of curiosity, have you have you seen the video, Michael? I haven't. I've I've just read about it. Okay, uh, so I, 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 I got a chance to watch through the entire video. And what I the main thing that I got from it was he is a guy who is a relatively normal guy who's in over his head. <laughs> like, he's a guy who's, you know... I mean, he's not an idiot, but he's also... He's no genius. Like, he's, he's not a super smart person. All right? <laughs> and he was able to get a huge following by just by having conversations. A lot of them are interesting conversations. Yeah. And that basically made him an authority figure that he was never prepared to be. Mm. And unfortunately he has not taken that responsibility as seriously as he should mm -hmm. because you know, and one of the things that he mentioned in the video that he talked about in the video was specifically, well, I've had some people on here who are experts who have had questions and have said things about the vaccine. And I feel like that was a bit of a cop out because it's not just his guests that have been saying things about the vaccine. Mm -hmm. He's been saying things about it too. Yeah. Like he's been saying, you know, it, you, you, you don't have to vaccinate your kids. Like I'm not getting vaccinated. Uh, he even, th there was apparently an event in Canada, I believe mm -hmm. where he was going to be there, but like there was a vaccine mandate. So he canceled it because he was not willing to get vaccinated. Gotcha. Um, so it's not just them. It's not just his guests. It is also him. Yeah. That is, that is saying this now. There's, there have also been several instances in which he has gotten things wrong and apologized, in which he has gotten things wrong and tried to set the record straight. Mm -hmm. This just seems to be one of those in which his version of set the record straight is, let me have more doctors with the opposite opinion on. Yeah. Like, 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 like his, what he said he was going to start doing. Cause, cause he, he was, this was supposed to be his apology. What he said he was going to start doing is number one, try to do a little bit more research before his podcasts, <laughs> which I mean, I understand that his process is mostly conversational. Yeah. Like it's, we're just going to have a conversation and see where it goes. So if I'm not prepared to talk about something, it's because that's just where the conversation went. Mm. Um, but still if you have on, if you have an expert on virology during the COVID pandemic, you're going to end up talking about COVID. Yeah. So you should have some of that research ready and it should be actual research, not just a bunch of fucking crackpots. Yeah. Um, and number two, he said that whenever he has somebody on who has a controversial opinion, 
very soon after he'll make sure to have somebody else on in order to offer the other perspective. And I think there's also an issue here with the fact that he seems to be confusing the medical establishment yeah. with the political establishment. Yep. So one of the things I like about Joe Rogan is that he very frequently has people that are not a, a people on that are not a part of the political establishment. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to the political establishment, because the status quo is so weighted towards wealthy elites, establishment figures tends to have either more neoliberal, a more neoliberal ideology or a more things are good as they are ideology. And it's really the people that tends to be more outside of the political establishment that have a better sense of what's happening in the country. Mm -hmm. All right. That have a better sense of what the needs are of regular people. So it makes sense to try to bring people, not just a bunch of CNN correspondents, to actually bring people that are a little bit more outside of the political establishment on to talk about issues like, like Medicare for All, which, you know, they never talk about in it, which is never talked about in like Congress or anything anymore. Um, like tuition free college, they're still debating on student loan, uh, on student loan cancellation. Um, on, uh, on a universal basic income. There's like not even Bernie Sanders has spoken out in favor of universal basic income. But when you have people that are a little bit more outside of that, that come on to talk about these issues, that is valuable. But when it comes to the medical establishment, it's different. Now mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily mean that the medical establishment is always right. Obviously not. Or the science, the, the 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 scientific establishment is always right. Obviously, that that's not what it means. Yeah. Because science and medicine progress. Yes. All right. It's about discovering new information. So usually, what the medical establishment believes is true is often the thing that currently has the most evidence behind it. Mm -hmm. Not always. It's just I do want to make that clear. Answer. Not always. All right. It's the best answer they have with the current information. Yeah. Not always. All right. You know, uh, I mean, uh, the, the, the example that comes to mind for, for an, a, a time when that might not be the case is the whole craze over uh, saturated fat versus sugar. Mm -hmm. All right. The idea that saturated fat is the huge killer, the huge cause of obesity is just it's just not true. Yeah. All right. It's just not true. It's something that was actually elevated by this one scientist that was paid for by the sugar industry to do a whole propaganda campaign trying to demonize saturated fat so that they could elevate sugar. Mm -hmm. And that ended up being a huge contributor to the obesity epidemic. And by the way, don't take my word for that. Look it up because I am not a scientist. Um, but the, the, the point that I'm trying to make is, yes, sometimes the scientific establishment is wrong. But it makes sense to scrutinize a person more if they are going against it. You know, that doesn't mean that you just that you don't listen to what they have to say. You don't look at their evidence. But what it does mean is that like if if, if 90 percent of scientists are saying one thing and 10 percent of scientists are saying another thing, you should probably be more critical 
of the 10% than you are of the 90%. All right. I mean, it, it would be like, you know, if, if a certain percentage of scientists said gravity is real mm -hmm. and like, there was like a, a few, a few people that were astrophysicists that said, actually it's not real. And you started interviewing them saying, well, it's time to buck the establishment. Yeah. <laughs> that would be irresponsible because you should be more critical of them because it goes against what the, the vast majority of people are who are looking at the current evidence. All right. So I think Joe Rogan very much confuses the notion of bucking the political establishment. Yeah. And bucking the scientific establishment. Yeah. It seems like he leans into the attractive but totally fallacious yeah. belief that, like, the more novel some, like, novelty by itself is evidence in favor of a perspective. Like, yeah. like the fact that someone um, believes something outside of the norm means that they have been, they've done the scrutiny right that they have looked they must have done such good research in order to arrive at that outside of the norm opinion that it actually lends credence to their beliefs that they believe them and that they're against the norm which yeah. is a totally fallacious way to look at evidence yeah the reason why academia and and science has a peer review process is because the people that are going to have the best ability to heavily scrutinize the the new information that you present are going to be people that understand it. Yeah. It's not going to be Joe Rogan. <laughs> all right? Exactly. If you are presenting some type of novel idea or novel evidence, the person to look at, the person that that it makes sense to put the most scrutiny on that, the person that it makes sense to 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 present that to is going to be other scientists. Yeah, not a it's podcast. not gonna be Joe Rogan. <laughs> and we say that as a podcast. <laughs> we say that as a podcast. Yeah. We say that as a podcast. So I mean it's my my feelings about Joe Rogan are incredibly complicated, mm -hmm. but I just I just can't fucking stand this anymore. Yeah. Because he has such a big audience. He has such a big audience and they are hearing him say this, you know, not just his guests, they're hearing him say this mm -hmm. and it is making them less likely to get vaccinated. Yeah. And it's also making them, making it seem as though any attempt to get them vaccinated is the political establishment attempting to impose some type of anti-freedom agenda on them. Mm -hmm. Which then, which again goes back to that idea of the difference between the scientific establishment and the political establishment. Just because establishment has a negative connotation in politics doesn't mean it's automatically a bad thing in science. Yeah. All right. And again, I'm not saying that they're always right. All right. They're just they do... way more likely to be right than you yeah. are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It They're way more likely to believe You don't right have to are. believe crazy shit to believe that. <laughs> yeah. You know? And like and and I think like regardless over like the platform war, like I don't particularly blame Spotify. Like yeah. they've got this really like valuable asset. Um I think I think to your point, Nathan, Joe Rogan should take his job 
more seriously. You should do it with yeah. more integrity and more thought. Um, like, I don't think that yeah. that necessarily means like the fact that he's been negligent and that has been a problem um, means necessarily that they should like kick him off the platform or that I'm going to like boycott Spotify or anything like yeah. that. Like, like, and he strikes me as someone who's not necessarily a malicious character sure, or a malicious individual, but like, you know, the, I know some people in my life that I'm very fond of that are not bad people that are not malicious people that are well-meaning that are completely anti-vaccine. Oh yeah. Sure. And if they had a podcast that was the size of Joe Rogan's, I'd be like, look, I love you, but you're fucking irresponsible Mm -hmm. and you're causing harm. You're doing, you're causing harm. I think that this is a good time to go ahead and bring up the whole issue of the deplatforming. Yeah. Because if it, if it isn't clear, I'm, I am definitely saying like right now, at least Joe Rogan is doing a lot of harm. Yeah. Like he, he, he is doing a lot of harm with what he's doing. But then the other question is, should he be deplatformed because of it? And if you've listened to this show before, you probably know where I'm going to come down on this. As a general rule, I always err on the side of free speech. Now, I know that some people are probably going to think, well, well, hold on. This isn't a free speech issue because this isn't the government. This is a private company. But it is a free speech issue because it's the principle of freedom of speech. Yeah, I do I do see the fact that it's not a First Amendment issue. Mm-hmm. It's obviously not a First Amendment issue because that applies to the federal government and not to a private company. But it is still a free speech issue. If we are going to acknowledge the fact, as a lot of progressives do, that private companies, with all of the power that they have, have essentially gotten to the point where they are the new tyrants. Mm-hmm. They are the new, they can inf- basically, governing body. They can infringe on your freedom just as easily yeah. and readily as, as any government could. Exactly. If we're going to acknowledge that, which you know, even even less progressive people acknowledge that, because you know, we support things like the civil rights, the, the civil rights act. <laughs> yeah. You know, which is basically saying, hey, private businesses, private institutions cannot infringe on your freedom. All right. If we're going to acknowledge the idea that even a private company can infringe on your freedom and that is just as bad as if the government does that, then we do still have to acknowledge this as a free speech issue. Mm -hmm. And what I would come down on is unless he is breaking the law, meaning direct threats threats of violence, uh, doxing, um, you know, harassment to the point where it actually does violate some type of law, then yeah, prosecute him, remove those episodes, you know, and, and, and I have no problem with that. However, in a sense, in in, the idea of completely deplatforming him or completely taking down these episodes, I just do not think is the right way of going about it both on principle and in practice, because you know what people are going to say if you do that. The people that listen to him are going to be like, well, they wouldn't be trying so hard to deplatform him unless they were hiding something. Because <laughs> that's what they say. Yeah, That's what they say. I mean, we, we've kind of had the, 
had the same thing, the same argument going on here in Virginia about book banning. Mm-hmm. All right. When, when, when it comes to book banning, we often say, you know, banny book, makey people want to read book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they put out a list so, of all the banned books so people can go read them. <laughs> yeah. It, it makes me want to go read them. Mm-hmm. It makes me want to go read them. So, so on a practical level, you know, you might limit his reach in some ways, but the people that are listening to him, they're just going to be more set in their ways. Mm-hmm. I think that the best solution is actually something that is kind of what, what well, well, first off, it's partially what Joe Rogan's already saying he's going to do, which is to bring people onto his podcast soon after to be like, okay, what? So this person said this, why is that wrong? Yeah. Um, or even, you know, other people that listened to, that listen to Joe Rogan's podcast, breaking, doing videos where they break it apart and they say, okay, here is why this is wrong. Mm-hmm. All right. Explaining why it's wrong. That's, I think that that's more likely to potentially change the minds of people that are already following Joe Rogan. Now I, I do want to say, I do have a lot of respect for, for Neil Young in mm-hmm. this, in this circumstance, because even though I do disagree with what he was ultimately trying to do, his intentions were based on the critique of the misinformation. Yeah. Like his intention was, I want more people to get vaccinated and Joe Rogan is standing in the way. And also he had a principle. It wasn't my principle, but he had a principle. He stuck to it and he like, he sacrificed his own, uh, his own ability to his own platform on Spotify for that principle. So like, I, I don't necessarily want it to sound like I am maligning him. I don't want it to yeah, sound sure. like I'm, I don't want it to sound like I, I am, you know, disrespecting it. I just, I don't think that that's the right solution. A lot of people that I love and respect completely disagree with me on this. My wife disagrees mm-hmm. with me on this. All right. But I just don't think this is the way. So as we usually do on our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? My highlight this week is a bit of a preemptive highlight. So this week we're actually going to be on a uh, recent friend of ours podcast. And we're going we're gonna to talk about podcasting. We're going to talk about um, what we do. And I'm just really excited about that. I don't want to give too many details about it because uh, I want to, I wanna, you know, we'll, we'll make sure to promote it specifically on this pod. But uh, shout out to Jerry, and uh, it's another Sunday podcast. Yeah, man, you, you took the words right out of my mouth. That was going to be my highlight, too. I'm super psyched <laughs> to have the conversation. I'm super psyched to be to be on Jerry's show. Um, it's going to be awesome. So, yeah, definitely tune in to It's Another Sunday podcast. Uh, and go check out the other episodes, too. Jerry's doing um, great work over there, elevating uh, people from all walks of life. So it's a really great show. Jerry and Debbie, we should, we should say. Uh, both of them. Big shout out to them. We're excited to talk to y'all. So now it's time to say a big thank you to our patrons over at patreon.com slash the Perspectrum. Um, so thank you to Taylor Bloom, Jerry DeVillier, uh, Fade Out Scoop, Kyle Chaska, and Tobias Jansen for being our patrons. And with that, thank you so much for listening to the Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week. <laughs>